today, as you know, is a partnership uh, between uh, St. Paul's Theological Center and Premier Radio and uh, uh, Mind and Soul. And it's something we're, uh, we've been working on together for some while. And the speakers for today is a fantastic lineup of people uh, representing all three of those different organizations. And we're really glad to be doing this uh, together. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome our first speaker for today, our first keynote address, which is, um, who is Rob Waller. Rob is a consultant psychiatrist working uh, for the NHS in Scotland. Uh, he's married to Susanna. And uh, he is a director of Mind and Soul. And his title for this session is Why We Do What We Do, Three Irrefutable Laws. So uh, please give a very warm welcome to Rob Waller. Or um, coming here today, it really is absolutely packed, and it, it's such a thrill from, from my point of view to see so many people together. Um, Mind and Soul's got a number of aims that I'm sure we'll touch on again throughout the day, but, but one of them is, is to encourage you. And if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, am I the only Christian who's got an interest in mental health problems? And one of the things I believe is if you can get, well, by the time we're finished today, there's probably going to be about a thousand people here. If you can get a thousand people together in one place, I think that's really exciting. This church has barely been this full this year, I understand. So it's so exciting to have you all here for this conference today. And thank you for putting up with, with some of the problems and difficulties getting everyone in. What I do want to do today is try and sort of kick it off uh, with a discussion around emotional health and Christian theology. And I think it's a really good topic to, for a conference because I think the, the Christians with an interest in mental health topics need to start getting their heads around some of the theology, otherwise the danger is we just speak from our passion. And also I think the theologians in the church need to start getting their heads around some of the issues to do with counselling and mental health problems, So because it's going to be an increasingly important topic in the church. And the goal of all of this, and particularly today, is to try and get the Bride of Christ ready for her groom and doing what she should be doing. And one of the things I think I wonder is if the church is a wee bit grubby in the wedding gown that it's wearing, and perhaps some of the things we can do today is start tidying that up. And one of the goals of St. Paul's Theological Centre is to get theology out there into the local churches, because we always need to be appraising what we're doing. Um, the Protestant reformers used to say, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est. Now, I'm not a theologian, but for those of you who are, that was some Latin in the first paragraph. No more is coming, I promise you. But what I want to do is pick up and take things forward from the address I gave at our conference in Bradford last year when I was dealing with some of what I think mental health services have to bring to the church. And we were talking about, for example, the role of, of medication as, as a proven intervention in, in some people. And also the bias that the NHS consistently has for the poor. And sometimes the NHS is in danger of embarrassing the church in how much it cares for the poor and deprived in our society. And also a lot of the knowledge that psychologists have got about how people change over time with due process. And I think we can learn from that, but today I want to turn the focus in a little bit and have a look at the church, because it's my assertion that this is where people still turn in times of mental distress. People still look to the church, and also I think this is where God has placed his hope. So that's why we're looking at why we do what we do as, as mind and soul and also about the church. And we're going to be asking, I think, probably some rhetorical questions. Has our theology and our churchmanship become distorted from what it should be? I think the answer is yes. Has the effect of this been for us to look like 
we are supporting people with mental health problems, but maybe actually doing them and their faith some harm. And I want to say a slightly controversial yes in that direction. And if we can get some of this straight, if we can get our theology straight, if we can get our understanding straight, have we got things to communicate back to, men- to secular mental health services? And the answer to that is, is yes. So I want to run through three, I've, I've called them laws, but they might be better thought of as 101 theology sort of plumb line truisms that sometimes we did our theology so long ago that we've kind of forgotten and we need to refresh them, bring them out of the closet and critically appraise what we're doing in the light of them. And I think they're irrefutable, not in the sense that you can't argue them or discuss them, but I think we would be unwise, unwise to move far away from the sort of things they're saying. So here's a picture I used at the last conference again in Bradford. It's by um, Reformed, he, he would say recovering alcoholic, Peter Housen. And this is the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, AA, you may well have heard of, but you may not know it started out as a Christian method for dealing with alcohol addiction. And despite some quite strong liberal influences, it's remained spiritual to its very core. So step one is we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And in Christian speak, we may say we are all sinners. That might be our starting point. Step two, we came to believe that a higher power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity i.e. in Christian speak, we cannot save ourselves, we need a saviour. And then the third step, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Or in Christian speak, we began to seek and we began to follow the saviour. And this, I think, is where we run into problems, because when people begin to seek and begin to follow the Saviour, this usually involves meeting some of his saints and going to his house. And if you look at this picture, what you can see, if we can just put the picture back up there, is that he's not looking at the higher power up in the sky. He's looking at the church. He's looking at the church. And that's what many in Alcoholics Anonymous do, is they look at the church in times of spiritual experience. And it's not restricted to addictions, because I know in my day-to-day work as a psychiatrist that when people are experiencing or recovering from depression or psychosis or in early dementia and also in late dementia, they can still have profound spiritual questions. And we are still, I believe, in a position in this country where there is still a church on most prominent corners. And we need to be ready to receive these people when they start looking. Now, it's always been said that the church is somewhat of a curate's egg, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and make the more excellent parts of it more visible and try and tidy up some of the less excellent parts. So, let's move on to the three steps, and I think there are three areas where good theology would suggest a major change to how we currently manage psychological problems, both in the church and in mental health care systems. And to illustrate these three, I want to have a fresh look at a Bible passage. So this is the time for you perhaps to grab a Bible. This is a theology conference. We're going to look at the Bible. And there's one just in front of you there, if you've got one. And we're going to turn to John 21, if you've got a Bible there. And the situation here is right at the very end of John's Gospel. Jesus has just risen from the dead. And he's in the process of cooking a huge load of fish and a big hearty breakfast for the disciples. Now, I personally would have preferred bacon, but... Not saying anymore. It was a good breakfast. So let's read John 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sleep. And I tell you the truth, when you were younger and dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you will not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at supper, had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. But because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Okay, now there's a few sermons that normally get preached on that passage. And I'm just going to cover a couple of them really quickly because I'm not going to go through those sermons. The first is about the reinstatement of Peter by Jesus after he had denied him. And the sermon that often comes from that is that we too can be used by God despite the fact that we have denied him and betrayed him on numerous occasions. The second sermon that sometimes gets preached on this is one that's perhaps more common in Roman Catholic Church, saying more about the fact that Peter is the leader of the church. And actually, the place where this took place, that there should have been a picture up beside that, sorry, but the place where this should have been is, is Tabgar on the northwest coast of Galilee. And if you go there, you can see a church, the church of the primacy of Peter, and it's still there on the place where that took place. But I want to say that Peter wasn't just reinstated, he was also renewed. He also something deeper happened in him. And one of the sermons that you might have heard preached on this passage is a sermon about counselling. And it's one that I've preached, and it's one that I've heard preached, and it goes something like this. There's three key counselling principles that you can get out of this passage. First of all, it must be painful. Jesus is nothing if not blunt in the way that he rams home these three interrogations about love to remind Peter of the three denials a few chapters earlier. And there are times in any journey in counselling where we do have to face up to some of the hard facts. And this invariably hurts people, not just their pride, but it also hurts their heart as well. And the second thing that's sometimes said is that in counselling you need to make sure that you keep things personal. Any counsellor will tell you that there's often red herrings that creep into it. What about John? What about the other disciple? No, Jesus, you know, you, me, Peter, we need to keep talking about the key issue here. Their eyes meet. There's no masks at this point. And the third thing that I think we all dream of in counselling is that you get permanent change. This is the goal of every single counsellor, is to make a lasting change in somebody's life. And Peter had a number of defining moments in the Gospels. This is arguably one of the greatest ones. His heart is broken, but it needed to be. After all, this is the leader of the early church. We need to make sure that he's got foundations of rock, because that's what his name means, and not feet of clay. But, but, I think there's a lot more that we can learn from this passage and a lot more we can learn from Peter than just some nice rhyming points to remind us what good counselling is. And although I've preached that sermon myself, I think one of the things I want to say, that's what happens when we have three good ideas about counselling inside our head and we go hunting for a Bible passage that seems to fit with that. And as I say, I hold my hand up and I have done that. 
And it's not that I don't think that sometimes counselling is painful. Sometimes counselling does require people to get personal. And sometimes it requires and results in permanent change. It's not that I disagree with those things. But I wonder if at this point we can bring in our three irrefutable laws, stand back, look at some of the other things that we can learn about Peter. And they are very briefly, my first law I'm going to call grace before works. Grace before works. How we need to be constantly aware that in so many other areas in the gospel, we're often bringing works in. So in our evangelism, in a whole bunch of things in the church, right throughout the New Testament, works are creeping in and squeezing out grace. And I wonder if we need to look at what we're doing in counselling and make sure grace is at the heart there. The precious gift of grace mustn't be lost behind works-based thinking that seems very helpful, seems very wise. The second thing I want to say is about integration before isolation. And there are times for one-to-one counselling in the church. There are times for one-to-one counselling. And we've got some representatives here from organisations who specialise in one-to-one counselling. But actually those organisations also believe in pastoral care in the church, in the healing and the wholeness of entire communities. Because to see the mentally ill as unwell and sort of over there getting counselling is to isolate, dichotomise and stigmatise. And we also believe, I believe, in redemption before recovery. Jesus, my Bible tells me, came primarily to seek and to save the lost. If our sins might be forgiven, that we might follow him to God. And so when we have symptom X or symptom Y that we want some help with, that may or may not be part of our journey this side of heaven. Our pursuit of peace may not fit in with a crucified Christ like Peter is here in this picture. So let's have a little look at the first law, which is called grace before works. And a bit of history here. Talking therapy is based on a scientific model. So Freud was a neurologist before he became a psychoanalyst. I'm a psychiatrist. That means I am medically trained as a doctor. And if you go out there and look at what is an effective therapy... Effectiveness usually means that if 100 people follow model X, then more of them will get better than if they follow model Y. But there's a problem with that, is that not everybody gets better. These things are statistics, these things are processes that seem to work for average people, but not everybody gets better. If you put in symptom X, apply process Y, you should reap result Z. These therapies are ultimately mechanistic, but there's a cost. There's a big cost in this. And I think, I'm not quite sure, we have got a picture here. The picture of a chap called Sisyphus. And Sisyphus is a chap from Greek mythology. And I, I won't bear you the myth. It's rather torturous. Okay, you have to trust me and go and read it later. But Sisyphus was a naughty boy. And he was condemned to push a rock up a hill. And when he got to the top of the hill, it rolled down the far side again. And he had to start at the bottom again and push it up the hill and push it down the far side again. And sometimes this is what doing therapy can be a little bit like. If you do something like cognitive behavioural therapy, which is the gold standard for many talking therapies today, it can work wonders. It really can. But what if you don't seem to get it? What if you don't seem to grasp it? You can be left with this very profound feeling that you didn't think hard enough, that you didn't work hard enough at it, that you weren't committed at it enough, that you need to do more. And to be sure, sure, a good therapist is going to work against it, but I believe that because it's fundamentally a mechanistic basis behind this therapy, it's going to leave us with that sort of works taste in our mouth if it doesn't work for this or for us or for our particular person who we know and love. 
And there's many times in the church where we bring in works where grace should primarily operate. So, for example, in a particular ministry area, how many times are people dropped because they're not running fast enough, because they're not performing up to the standards that ministry is expecting? Um, How many times have you heard more encouragement to put more money into the offering basket to sort of prove how much you want to change in some shape or form? How many times have you heard a preacher try to motivate his congregation, which sometimes needs to happen, but fail to get across the message that they are loved just as they are? And how many times is resistance to change interpreted as resistance to the gospel? That they ought to sort of get lost and let the rest of us get on with this important work of sharing the gospel. And at that point I want to say, hmm, wasn't that the gospel of grace? Or did I miss something at that point? And I think this sort of incipient use of works is rife within our church and rife in how we deal with mental health problems. So let's have a bit of a look at what we can learn from Peter in John 21 on this. And I perhaps want to take you back to the story and think, why was it that Jesus chose Peter? Why was it that out of all the other people he asked Peter to lead the fledgling church? Was it because of his great learning? Well, no, he was a fisherman. Was it because of his ability to say the right thing at the right time? Uh, No, I don't think it was. And was it because he'd always stood firm under persecution? Well, no, not exactly. So Peter doesn't look like a great person to to lead the early church. And if I wonder what's going on in this story in John 21 is that Peter grasps the true nature of grace. And ask yourself what those three questions were that Jesus asked Peter. Were they designed to be painful? Not primarily. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus' intention was to make Peter experience pain. Likewise, were they designed to bring on a feeling of guilt? Not primarily, no. They may have resulted in guilt and made him realise how much he needs a saviour, but they weren't primarily to make him feel guilty. Because guilt's not a great motivator. And what happened in those things was that you had the question and then you also had the feed my sheep. And those two came along together. So the question and the acceptance, the commission, and those two things came together. This unconscious communication to Peter of something very, very special. And I I was trying to put it into words and I think it's something like, Peter, you, you see this feeling that you're experiencing right now. This acceptance, this approval, this new birth, this new chance... Don't ever forget that. Whatever you do in the future, take that moment on with you, for this is grace, and this is the gospel I want you to preach. Somebody once said that Peter is able to be the greatest shepherd to the church because he was the greatest sinner. And other people might preach a gospel and they might say, oh, you need to go and find salvation over there at that saviour. Whereas Peter's always going to say he's never left the foot of the cross. He's never been very far from the foot of the cross. And he says, come, come where I still am. Come and receive salvation. Come and receive grace here. Don't go over there to get it. Come here because I've never left that. And this is true in the Christian gospel. This scandal that those who are last seem to be first. Those who are weak seem to be strong. Those who have no logical human hope get given a name in a future. And that's what I think was happening there in that John 21 story. Is Peter has that revelation in his heart of what the true nature of his grace is about. And this, I think, is why it frustrates me so much that all of these works-based strategies get used in the church and they seem to be so short-term. They don't work half as well as grace. They don't work half as well as hope. And 
although the talking therapies do seem to have some evidence, if you go out there and talk to people who are doing counselling, who are doing CBT, who are doing psychoanalysis, one of the things they'll tell you is that they're all much of a muchness the same. They all do much, they're all roughly as effective as each other. And the really, really, really important thing is the therapeutic relationship. Way more important than the particular school, the particular technique, the particular book, is the therapeutic relationship, that place of trust, that place of exploration, that place of sometimes painfully slow journey. And Christians, of course, are in the fortunate position of being able to state the reason for that therapeutic relationship. Because Jesus loved me, so I love you. And actually, this is here in Scripture, and it's here in the Church Fathers. It says in Titus 12, verse 2, that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, teaches us to change, if you like. So I think when we get grace and we manage to communicate that, it teaches us to make the kind of changes that we want to change. And also, Martin Luther talked about the school of grace, which will change our wills to match the will of God. There's this teaching and this school going on. And to be sure, there's a time, as as James will tell us, for works and targets and strategy and goals, but only, only ever after a robust place is given to grace before works. So that's the first law. And perhaps we might like to look at what we do and say, is grace paramount before works comes in? So, a bit lighter, on to the um, second of the irrefutable laws. I think there should be a, this is a picture of me at work. Okay. This is what I do. This is what I do all day. Is that not right? There's the, um, you know, you, 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 I, people think I do this kind of stuff. And you, you sort of go in to see the psychiatrist and it's a bow tie probably. And they say, so, tell me the relationship that you have with your parents. Um, I was their son. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what's meant to come out, but, but the idea here is that you go to see a psychiatrist and something dark and mysterious happens in a room. You go in and something weird happens and you sort of come out sorted. Um, we go in there to talk about secret stuff, dirty stuff that we don't want other people to know about that might offend our British sensibilities that we're embarrassed to talk about in public. And, you know, when you read 21, you can think, well, Peter, stay over here with me, said Jesus. Don't, let's not bring John into this. He's not polluted with your kind of issue. I've got to sort this out with you over here. But, getting a bit more serious, actually that's how we deal with quite a lot of mental health problems in the church today. One of the really trendy things I think that churches are going for nowadays, and please hear me, I do think this is good, but sometimes it's pursued for the wrong reasons, is to have a counsellor on the staff. Okay, so in the um, 1980s, everyone had a youth worker. In the 1990s, you wanted to have a worship leader on staff. Nowadays, what you want is you want to have a counsellor on staff who can deal with all the sort of emotional stuff that we're not quite sure what to do with. So we'll get a counsellor and and we'll sort that out and we'll get people across into a small room and sort the problems out. And there are times to do that, but if it happens like it did with CBT, if it happens, you know... To make people feel they need to work to get better. If it happens away from the rest of the congregation, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Because if you go back to John 21, what is happening here? Yes, Jesus is taking Peter away for a brief conversation, but if you turn over one page to Acts chapter 1, it's absolutely amazing. You see Peter who stands up surrounded by the believers in the upper room. So immediately Peter is there surrounded, endorsed, encouraged by the believers. If you turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 11, you see him standing up 
with the 11. And he's given this amazing platform to speak to several thousand people, probably more who were coming for Pentecost there, on behalf of the early church. And if this was a guy who we think a little while earlier, was receiving counselling of some kind and was having some pretty serious questions asked of him. Is that the person who you're going to give that sort of responsibility to? Well, the Bible says yes, and everyone's backing him, and no one's got a problem with it. So I think if we're going to do some one-to-one counselling, it needs to happen in that kind of context. And sometimes, you know, we don't treat people like that if they're receiving counselling. We sort of say, oh, can I be that person's friend? Um, is it safe to be their friend? Um, what people, I think a lot of this is people don't actually know what to say, but we come up with this, is it safe to be their friend? Um, is it a good idea? Would we ask that person to lead our church if they're currently receiving counselling? And often the answer is, is no. And also sometimes I think if we put counselling over there in a cupboard, that's where the mentally ill people are. Over here, all of us, we're the mentally well people. Now, I know that's a pleasant fantasy, And I'm sure most of you do as well. And it leads to this dichotomy. And we stigmatise that group and say, please go over there and get sorted out until you can be like us. And actually, actually the reality is probably exactly the opposite. Probably the people seeing the church counsellor are the enlightened ones. Because they're actually doing something about their problems. They're self-aware. The rest of us are in denial a lot of the time. And... They're the ones who have humbled themselves and taken off the mask and began to talk. Bishop of London says that the unexamined life is such a shame. And so many of us don't examine our lives. And the people going for counselling, I think in this are the good guys. And actually, they're the people who know the importance of true friendship. They're the importance of people who understand community. And I have got some amazing friends who have had, I've, I've got a number of friends who've been detained under the Mental Health Act. And they are great people because they know what matters. They're not interested in all the social chit-chat and the social froth. They know what matters. So let's not isolate counselling out of the way. I, I wonder what would happen if we saw people as God sees them, if we saw what still needs to be done to accept them as they are, never to highlight what's been covered already, never to worry about what perhaps God is going to deal with in the future, just to say, you're on a journey. We're all partners in the gospel. We're all in jars of clay. We've all got weaknesses. We've all got frailties. As much me as the people who are receiving counselling. And one thing that never ceases to amaze me is how people manage to struggle day-to-day with psychosis, day-to-day with suicidal thoughts. In my work, I meet people who are better people than me because their lived experience is one I'm not sure I could live. I'm an expert from a textbook. They're experts in their lived experience, and I'm not sure I could walk that path without giving up. So hats off to people who struggle and survive and recover with mental illness. Hats off to people who are going for counselling. And to illustrate this, I do want to show you a clip from the film whose title we nicked as the theme for this conference, A Beautiful Mind. And in the film, there's no question mark. We've called it a beautiful mind question mark to sort of have a discussion around whether or not we're doing all we could do as a church in this area. But... In that situation, there is no question mark. A beautiful mind. John Nash, suffering from schizophrenia, has a wonderful mind because he's a child of God. And in this clip, we see John Nash's wife talking to a close friend about what it's like to be married to someone who's currently very unwell. I spoke so fondly of being here at Princeton. And Hanson is running the department now. So he keeps reminding us. Reminding us. (laughs) Yeah. John won't come near the campus, though. He 
think he's ashamed. So, Alicia, how how are you holding up? Well, delusions have passed. They're saying with medication and low-stress no. environment. I mean, how are you? I think often what I feel is obligation. Or guilt over wanting to leave. Rage against John, against God. But then I look at him and I force myself to see the man that I married. And he becomes that man. He's transformed into someone that I love. And I'm transformed into someone who loves him. It's not all the time, but it's enough. <laughs> I think John is a very lucky man. I once heard community is defined as when good friends and wise people turn their chairs inwards and talk well. And I wonder if we can strive to have churches like that, places where there may or may not be times for one-to-one counselling. I, I do think that's important. But first and foremost, where we can be ensured that the entire process of church is empowering, the entire community is healing, places where there's integration and not isolation, places where both distress and difficulty, because we're called to mourn with those who mourn, are dealt with alongside hope and healing. And a little thought, it's a shame to leave all those wonderful experiences of grace in the counselling room, isn't it? Let's experience them as a community. Let's share and let's discover just how good Jesus is and don't let the counsellors have all the fun, okay? Okay, third point, third point. John 21 is a wonderful power, wonderful chapter and it ends with some lovely words, doesn't it? You know, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose there wouldn't be a, a world big enough to have room for all the books that might be written about them. And it ends with this sort of wonderful thing. And it's tempting at this point to sort of back out and kind of go all sort of soft focus and think, oh, you know, happily ever after, end of story. Peter's been set right by Jesus. If there is a sequel... It'll be boring because the main event has happened. But luckily, we've got the rest of the New Testament to tell us a little bit more about Peter. And far from permanent epiphany, he goes on to have a number of other significant questions. For example, the whole issue of mission to the Gentiles, the whole issue of, of circumcision. Peter is far from convinced on the whole grace question. And his path, although it might be going slowly uphill, is actually quite rocky to say the least. He remained at the foot of the cross and he followed Jesus and it led ultimately to his own cross. And I 
wonder how we deal with that sort of up and down kind of recovery in the church. You know, sometimes we can be very sort of goal-focused and life coaches and, you know, let's get life on track, um, almost like a sort of scene from The Bold and the Beautiful. You've got to have sort of this car and, and that sort of positive mental attitude and stuff like that. But how do we do with people who are stuck or people who are backsliding, or people who waver, or people who have bad days, or people who still struggle with depression, or people who fail to progress in some shape or form. How do we deal with that kind of situation as a church? And not very well, I think. And sometimes we can look at people who appear to be going through a difficult time in their lives and come up with a whole bunch of assumptions as to what's going on. You know, for example, they're not trying hard enough, they need to snap out of it. Um, Probably don't necessarily think I'd do a whole load better in their situation, but perhaps we do. And there's a whole bunch of things that could actually be going on. Because Peter's journey didn't take him to the bold and the beautiful, it took him to the cross, being crucified upside down because he knew he wasn't as worthy as Jesus. No idea if that's true or not, by the way, sorry to the theologians, but it's a, it's a nice story about Peter. But are there things that we see in the church that actually the person could be following Jesus as avidly as Peter and we mistake it for depression? So, for example, the mother caring for the three young children under five because the father was left home. The young man keeping quiet about the family debt because he knows how fragile his father's self-esteem is. The woman who goes to church every single Sunday and can barely manage a smile because she is the only one in her family who comes and the only person witnessing to her children. Or the man who's passed over for promotion at work on repeated occasions because he begins to stick his head above the parapet for Jesus. And there's many reasons why following Jesus can be difficult. And sometimes it's a good old-fashioned wilderness period. King David had a number of them. And we don't preach on the wilderness periods very often because they're not very fun. They suck. He was alone by himself. His best friend had been murdered. They're not very fun wilderness periods. But I suppose my point is that we shouldn't be expecting this permanent recovery. Yes, we do hope for lasting change, but the idea that after counselling or after a healing service, people sort of follow this sort of 45-degree slope slowly upwards is a complete fantasy. And maybe, as I said earlier, perhaps the removal of symptom X, such as loneliness, is not something that's on God's radar this side of heaven. Because perhaps not the path, that's not the path that God has called them to. And perhaps it's more important to learn to, to live alongside our thorns. Because we prayed many times for God to take it away, but he didn't. Perhaps it's more important to tolerate those whose faith is weak. Because maybe they are strong and were weak. We're not quite sure how Romans 14 deals with that. Maybe it's best to have a special modesty and to honour the less honourable parts, as 1 Corinthians 12 says. The film is not over yet, is my point. There's plenty, plenty, plenty of material for a sequel. So let me just close and summarise. We've said that there are three irrefutable laws. And these are, first of all, to pursue grace before works. Be careful we're not saved by grace and live by works in how we approach many situations in our church, but particularly counselling. Let's make sure that we pursue integration of emotional difficulty and distress and hope and healing in our churches before we pursue isolation in a particular room. And let's make sure that we pursue Jesus and redemption and the call that he has on our lives before we pursue the recovery of symptom X. But what does this look like? 
What does this look like? I've given you some free plumb lines for us to think about how our church might measure. What does it look like? And the the long and the short of it is that I'm not going to tell you the answer to that because you've got the rest of the day to find that out. And there's a whole bunch of excellent sermons here, many by dear friends of mine, some of my new friends, and it would be invidious of me to recommend any particular one to you, but please do go to your seminars. But a few simple pointers. Perhaps we can have just an atmosphere of grace in our church. You know, you should be able to sort of Is there grace in the room at this moment? Even when people are being challenged, is there grace? Is there an atmosphere of grace? Affirmation as much as progress. The preaching is about how much God has loved us and what he has done for me as much as it is and more so than what I can do from him. Because that's where grace stems from. Let's pursue the alongside community. One of my favourite translations for the Holy Spirit is is the paraclete. Now, the paraclete is not a type of stormtrooper. The paraclete is, is the dove, and it means the alongside presence of the Holy Spirit. So often we say the Holy Spirit is in your future, the carrot of healing. Or the Holy Spirit is in the past, the, the stick of having got everything you need for this Christian life, or or the stick of grieving his presence. No, the Holy Spirit is the alongside presence of the Holy Spirit and the alongside community of God's people. And first of all, let's pursue an amazing Lord, sharing testimonies of triumph, but also testing testimonies of testing, Okay, because that may well still be going on for a whole bunch of people. So thank you for listening. I do want to wish you an amazing day and for much to take home from this. We dream of a beautiful mind for a beautiful bride dressed in white and waiting for her Lord. Thank you.